Welcome back to Homekeepers. Every episode, we learn about how someone goes about making our collective home a better place, and every single one of us lives in a community. This week's guest, CJ Carter, is practiced in the art of strengthening community as a professional planner working with groups around the world to make them stronger and more resilient in the face of an unstable planet. This is part two of our conversation, so if you're unfamiliar with who he is and haven't yet listened to part one of our chat, be sure to check it out. Now, without further ado, please give another round of applause from wherever you're listening today to CJ Carter. What scale makes sense for thinking about that? Because I find myself overwhelmed Mm -hmm. when I think at an international level. I mean, obviously, you have a lot of experience with international problem solving. It's very impressive, but also, I think, overwhelming um, for everybody, including people that run in that arena. So when you talk about forming a resilient community, what scale is productive for the average person? There might be the answer might be it depends. But. Yeah, I'm I'm a regional planner <laughs> yeah. by trades. And the reason is my mind works really well at a watershed scale. And the what reason does that mean? Watershed, if you think about a point of land, like a big hill or yeah. a mountain range, and you look at where the waters flow before they interact with other big bodies of water, that cashment, that outline that yeah. you sketch around that the height of land is basically, it has a full, complete system in it. Yeah, it's, the bowl. Yeah. It's like a bowl made by nature the mountains and hills and yeah so sometimes counties in the united states or precincts or prefectures wherever you are in the world have some natural boundaries like that and that's nice because that's the way natural capital flows it's the way that what sustains us as humans moves yeah it's water it's soil it's like pretty um, much everything yeah (laughs) and i think what's what's weird is you know we started to as newcomers draw straight lines on very complicated terrain and create things like counties and section lines and survey lines and boundaries and borders that make it difficult to make decisions at that natural scale. So the closest we often see is um, a county, mostly just watershed or a few major watersheds or a basin. So I, I think that's really productive because folks can wrap their head around that. But generally when folks get involved, it's a place Mm, it's mm-hmm. a it's a body of water it's a neighborhood it's something that they can rapidly identify with but generally connected to a bigger scale so nice yeah and we can talk about too i mean you've seen me at a different scale yeah uh, and i think <laughs> when we were at cop 26 yes the united nations uh conference all about what the world is going through and how we can fix it <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those rare platforms where we actually could agree on something as a, more than 190 countries and do something about it. But it's super, um, moves really slow and it can be really frustrating. Imagine yeah. trying to decide on what's for dinner with 190 plus other People. friends. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. <laughs> really hard. You're going to end up with something that might be a little underwhelming. But what has always fueled me in working at the multi, they call it the multilateral or just like international level is literally things that communities and and people are doing on the landscape in their community. So whether it's improving forests to maintain their water quality or reintroducing cultural fire to Mm. handle fuels um, and, and also restore culture, or if it's bringing bison back to the land to increase biodiversity and social resilience and healing of people who um, 
who are who are hurt by decisions. These things bring me um, the very tangible scale where I say, oh, that's adaptation in action, and people are just killing it. They're doing a wonderful job finding what makes sense to them. One of my mentors, uh, Dr. Lenora Angelis, in the Philippines, they say it's like a babinka, which is a baked good. Oh, no <laughs> and <way>. it's basically, <laughs> it gets baked from the bottom and the top. Mm. And you end up with this delicious pastry or <laughs> baked good. Oh, yeah. And so it's basically, cool. it's the grassroots and it's it's folks on the ground saying, hey, we really want to do this. This is good. And then it's all the enabling. Decision makers. And... Yeah, saying, oh, yeah, no, you're going to know we need to resource you. Yeah. We're not going to pretend like. We know more. We're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that's what the research shows too. Is yeah. That, well, that's the humility of like both parties acknowledging like yeah. the people on top saying like, we don't have the understanding of no. your place that you have. And Never. the people on the bottom saying, we don't have the same level of capital that you guys have. And both mm-hmm. being like, here's how we can inform and help each other. Let's make it happen. It's really rare to see it. Um, yeah. And I think it was pretty, it's been funny. So, um, you know, I've had the honor to work on climate policy for seven years at the UN and work and meet incredible leaders who are doing those projects. And every time we're sitting in these weird sort of military style. Comp- it really is if- so military. <laughs> like big, like, like yeah. for if you're listening, like, you know, Star Wars, yeah. the like Imperial Council. Yeah. It's, it's that every yeah. time. Like that's, that is the room that CJ is describing. <laughs> yeah. And you're there for two weeks. Yeah. Oh, and great. there's no light. <laughs> I mean, it's no windows, no windows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do that because it's a security issue. You have heads of state, you have presidents and ministers and, Mm -hmm. um, they've had, you know, they have to do all the precautions they deal with, with, you know, terrorism attacks and bombings and shootings. And Mm -hmm. so you end up basically in this very disconnected environment. Yeah. Uh, but what we talk about with leaders from across the world is what's going on in their communities and why they're excited to be back there working with their people. and and being out on the land and when you're talking about leaders in this context you're not talking about presidents or kings mostly not yeah yeah can you describe the kind of leader that you're talking about and and kind of what that context looks like yeah 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 so one of the favorite parts of working at the un is you see the brightest minds you know they may have grown up in really difficult circumstances, but because they have a deep drive and a spark, they become the light of their community through the, what they do and how they serve and how grounded they are and mm-hmm. how they can advocate. And some of them grow up and become lawyers. Some of them grow up to be policy folks, engineers, um, artists who are able to catalyze the voices and the needs of their region and do something about it. Yeah. And some of them become in elect- elected politics. Some of them are not, um, or some of them for a few years. But what I constantly see is a term, I can't think of a better term yet than grounded leadership. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such a good term. It, yeah, yeah. It, it's like, you <laughs> I've know, never heard that before. Yeah. It's, it's perfect. And it's really pretty humble, but I think it maintains absolute clarity about what matters in life and what matters to people and folks who feel like they never are listened to and they're able to refract and carry that energy into spaces where decisions are made about those same bodies and lands. And so we're talking about 
Inuit lawyers and Sami policy professionals and scholars from historically black colleges who are doing incredible work in, in, their, in their communities and neighborhoods to address environmental issues and, and safety. And it's a master class in, in what really good grounded leadership looks like. And I feel like I learn so much every time about how do we start the day fully grounded and why you're there, who you're there to serve, and what is the end goal. And then maintaining that groundedness when you don't have that connection to your neighborhood or your people or your, you know, the fish or the, you know, the, the caribou or, and being able to kind of literally just kind of saddle up for the future of your place. And so these are not the folks in the spotlight. These Mm -hmm. are not. And I think what's beautiful about it is in a way, the cause becomes the most important or what they're advocating for becomes mm-hmm. more important than ego. Oh, yeah. And because and that that's cool because the work in that way is easy to hand off. Yes. You become a vessel for the work mm-hmm. and you take care of yourself. And when you're done, you go out there and spend time hunting or being with the reindeer or back with your family, sharing a good meal. And, and they're proud of you, you know, and they mm-hmm. said, you done good like you. You were there for us. You know, you got a rare opportunity to to be in that space of power. And I think what we need to see in order to make good decisions in our lifetime is more folks who come from these backgrounds in positions of decision making. And, yeah. and these are the folks who aren't there yet. They're, they're adjacent, but mm-hmm. the whole space hasn't transitioned yet. Yeah, there's to, still a lot, of, a lot of ego and a lot of flair that does not need to be there and usually hinders things. I feel like the folks that respect the vessel and the fact that they are a vessel and that they can run out and do frequently is huge in that like grounded leadership style that you've been discussing. I I really like what you said about being able to hand off responsibility when it feels like you're out because if you really care about a cause, you want the best person working on it. I struggled with this when I was first starting in this field, I struggled with the idea of saying I couldn't help because it felt bad. <laughs> but like, what a, what a self-centered way to view it because it's like, I can't help. Like, I won't be as good at that as somebody else might be. Mm-hmm. They should do it. Or I should help them get prepared mm-hmm. to do it instead of me um, because I am a vessel and I'm low right now. One day they'll probably be in the same position and then we can switch back. Yeah, And that's okay because it doesn't matter who does it as long as we're all working on it together and respect that vulnerability that we all have. And because we're in constant communication, we can be open about the fact that the person that's sitting to my side right now, like might need a break. Let's let them have that break so they can keep going for five years, 10 years, 30 years, instead of having this be the last month of high caliber effort they put in. It's huge. I mean, I think in especially Please, God, let's not do that if the only reason is to get something in a spotlight instead of actually solving a problem. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about is the next decades of our lives, and very few people play every minute of the game. If you're a hockey player or you're a fo- you, you play football, yeah. there are very few people who play every minute of every game for a career. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it's impossible. Yeah. Wow. Right. So the idea there is, you know, you can, some folks come in and they make a really big impact and then they kind of flame out or mm-hmm. it, they move on. And that's great. But I think some of these movements are really not about the person. They're about no. solving huge problems. And I think finding a pace and setting a culture, we know it's bigger than us and we need, we need so much support to do it. And it's going to take all of us mm-hmm. <laughs> to figure it out. It stops being about the individual, mm-hmm. but we do take care of the individual. Absolutely. And I think that's been the biggest thing I've seen in the climate movement since 2014, since starting is earlier on, it was very much around individual voices. And I think being more with your generation in that space makes me really excited because I see more durability in that movement because it's more intersectional, it's more caring, it's more collective care. And it it acknowledges that we're going to have to do this in a way that we carry the weight. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's better when we finish something because then there's people to celebrate it with. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not, um, yeah, it it plays into what we really need, which is connection to do hard things. And it's less of a, at least speaking from my experience, less of a movement now and more of just a value that we have to have. You can choose to not have it. Mm Mm-hmm. And that usually leads to a harder existence and a more angry one. But the general agreement, I think, for everyone in that we've got this generation, I'm dropping the bring it generation because we've got this is so much better, um, is like, yeah, we've got we have to be in this together. And we are. So do what you got to do and I'll help you out. Um, Yeah. And I I trust that you'll help me out when that time comes. Mm -hmm. Um, And if both of us need it, then thank God these other hundred people that we live nearby and with are willing to, to give us that hand. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Most of us aren't going to Mars. Yeah. No, (laughs) no chance. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We're here. It's it's cool that it's, it's, it's wild seeing it even in, in my lifetime, like the transition from when I first learned about this stuff in high school to even just being like fresh out of college, like a less than a decade, like timeline it went from a movement that I wanted to be a part of that was a segmented part of society to increasingly just a value Mm -hmm. that we all have. And we're all finally comfortable sharing that we all have that value. Yeah. And I think in this context, a lot of the conversation that I really appreciate seeing is how to do this work without immediately excluding people because it is about safety. Mm -hmm. It's about solving a safety problem. Yeah. You know, it's like we're, we're driving around without seatbelts on or we're stuck in the middle of a train track and there's a huge freight train coming mm-hmm. and we're not putting the car in gear. Mm-hmm. So how do we collectively all <laughs> shift into first yeah. and start to really go at this stuff as a, as a unit, as a team? Because mm-hmm. I think that that's really what we're going to have to do in the next decades ahead. Now that it's a value, maybe we don't label it as climate action or climate adaptation or mitigation it's just good economics and it's safety yeah right like yeah and people are always like oh the economy it's like okay we want to talk about the economy it's pointing in this direction that doesn't honor oil and gas and it looks like more jobs that are high skilled and higher paying and it looks like taking care of these problems and creating more jobs so Mm -hmm. that we don't have these economic shocks that are going to totally destroy these livelihoods so 
let's find that we and let's go yeah <laughs> because yeah we're sitting on the tracks mm-hmm. and we've studied the freight train for so much my entire we life know everything there is to know about older the than train. i am more than like <laughs> you know 40 years yeah and plus. i appreciate that work immensely yeah we yeah. know the problem mm-hmm. and now we strategize and then we put in first yeah <laughs> and then we move off we, we we save our own selves but then we look at the state of things yeah and we look at saying well we want to be strong right it's good to be strong yeah <laughs> we're in america <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> we want to be real strong what does that look like and mm-hmm. that means it means taking care of the landscape and taking care of people so that we don't get totally hosed mm-hmm. every year mm-hmm. over and over again and part of adaptation is acknowledging what we can adapt to and then what we might not be able to so if we need if folks need to move out of risk we need to help them yeah and that's been a huge thing that we've seen in riparian zones along rivers uh, we saw it with major flooding in, in um, alberta the mm. local governments said we're not gonna have people live there anymore yeah because it doesn't make sense yeah they lost everything yeah and if they were in their house they're they're no longer with us Mm. so i think the biggest paradigm here is a risk paradigm taking this stuff as literally just making yourself as small of a target yeah that you can and Mm -hmm. from an economic perspective we don't want unaddressed risks Mm -hmm. like if you're if you need to irrigate or if you need to you know, make sure your fruit gets to market or you need to make sure you've got X amount of visitors to make it pencil for your family. Like that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Let's and, do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's go do it. Yeah. And I see it as the single most important economic opportunity. The thing about adaptation and exciting economic it's so, opportunity. It, yeah. And it's absolutely innovation. And we know financially that an adaptation measure taken today is a tenth of the cost that it will be in the future sometimes even more so so and we know that some of those like green infrastructure and some of these systems that aren't necessarily big concrete dams or dikes along rivers have an even greater thing because they create jobs in the moment they save lives they save economic disruption they increase the connection between people. They can be part of an economic development strategy that addresses inequality and small businesses getting hurt by a pandemic. Yeah. Like, let's go. Like, this is, <laughs> Sounds awesome. This is an opportunity <laughs> to recover from a pandemic and make ourselves, you know, quote unquote, strong or resilient or ready or, or flourishing. Yeah. Because I think this is not necessarily about running away from something. Sometimes we need to do that. But it's about what we're walking towards and if we're unclear about the we and we don't have a direction, we're still on the tracks and we're still going to get hit. It's the difference between a connected and a fragmented society. Yeah. All of those economic solutions create a connected society. And that's super, super mm-hmm. special. To shift gears, the question that I, I wanted to ask before jumping into patron questions is what resources can someone use to learn how to help make their community more resilient and start practicing and getting into the realm of adaptation and thinking on that mindset? Do you have any any recommendations? Yeah, the textbook thing we start with is a vulnerability assessment. Mm. And I'd like to kind of do that with a plus at the end of it, (laughs) because some of it is is kind of 
um, focus on the weaknesses. It sounds very technical. It's pretty, it can be, it can yeah. be simple. I would think about it as a scan. It's okay. looking around your community. How are people connected? How are they organizing? What are the risks? Where's water coming from? Where's water going? Mm-hmm. Where are the biggest pains in your community? Mm. Have you had disasters? Have you had things that have, you know, most communities have had a flood, a fire, or drought at some point. I mean, if you live on the Pacific Ocean, probably a typhoon or, you know, hurricanes in the Caribbean. So look at that and look what happened. Sometimes we we can start with history, talk to elders, and usually within a library or a university, there's archives. Mm. So if you know there's a certain event, you can find newspaper clippings or photographs mm. or old, That's cool. old That's film. Like detective. Yeah. 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 It's investigative and it's trying to understand what's the nature of this place? How do the people organize? How well are they connected? So starting with that baseline and thinking about, is there just a small project where we can start to have this conversation? And that's really where I'm at now as a newcomer here in this landscape is what binds people together? What's interesting to to folks? Mm -hmm. What would spur that thing that would make us a bit more resilient? For example, I live really close to fire. Yeah. It's a big... There are two huge ones like, yeah. roaring right now, not yep. that far away. Yeah, our AQI was over 400, really bad. But that's, as humans, ecosystem-wise, fires can be really good. Yeah. But we basically have... when Refused to accept them. Yeah, yeah. we don't see them as important. Yeah. But in this community, we were right against what we would call a wildland-urban interface. So it's where fire meets where humans have decided to have long-term settlement. (laughs) Um, But being able to just even do like a block party and have a map and mark where we think danger comes from and where we need to leave from. Yeah. Or even just starting by getting to know your neighbors. Mm -hmm. Go for a walk in the morning. If you're in an apartment complex, um, don't be afraid of just having simple conversations with people in the stairwell or in the elevator, asking them about, you know, what is important to them mm-hmm. and and literally just getting connected i think is the first step on a technical side i think it's good to know where risks come from a lot of yeah. communities have an emergency plan mm-hmm. um, at their city hall or local government or often a copy is available in the library there's a section of the library where you can look at all the plans for your community Whoa. so we have documents what would that be called yeah i mean it'd be an emergency response plan yeah usually cool in this sense and you know if you uh, anybody in local government or fire, like if you have firefighters or wildland firefighters or um, emergency folks in mm-hmm. your every every community has a disaster response team or somebody who's cross listed. Yeah. So if you have folks in fire, local government, tribal government, ask them, hey, do we have an emergency plan for our community? Because what it does is it, it breaks down different types of hazards, mm. and a lot of times they're pretty generic. Yeah. But it's a place to start because usually during those plans, people gather a lot of really useful information. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do gatherings and focus groups with local community members to understand oh, cool. what matters to them and what we should do. Mm-hmm. The really progressive ones will have that and some strategies. Nice. So it's nice to stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. So somebody's done some of this work before. And, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to your local leaders and have a coffee and say, hey, I've noticed we have this thing. I want to figure out how we can make our community stronger. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they're here to serve the people. Yeah. And if we have ideas, that's where the power and innovation's at. Planning for me is the ultimate power people can have is organizing, envisioning, and implementing. Too often people see that planning is like what stands in the way of them and their development or like Mm, mm -hmm. adding an ADU on their house. But the heart of this comes from public health and public safety. It was during cholera and uh, ghost mapping of wells where people were being infected. I mean, it's the ritual of preparing for the future. It's Mm -hmm. something all of our societies have had and it is power and it's, it can be really positive. It can bring people together. And I think too often we organizing, we're organizing in opposition to something Mm-hmm. but we really can be organizing for something. Um, from a research perspective, we know that most of that organizing happens right after a disaster. Yeah. So there's an eight-month policy window. So if, you're ever, really? if you ever find yourself like, oh, that was really intense, I'm really passionate, just know that you have like eight months <laughs> of the attention of the people who just experienced this pain to say like, hey, we need a new evacuation route. That's way longer than I thought it would be because we in like impact production, you're always thinking like there's the nine day news cycle. And so it's like, oh, we've got to like prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare. And then there's like the hit moment. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, how do we transfer right. that attention in nine days? Yeah. And it's like powerful thing. But to know that for a community, if there's like an intense disaster, mm-hmm. that there's eight months, it's still pretty quick. Like it's still not that much time, but... Yeah. It's way better than nine days. <laughs> I like this framing and the tactics that this generation's taking because I think maybe you have nine days to launch the campaign so that as you're recovering, you're not just building the same wall that's going to get totally hit again. You're thinking about how do we want to do this differently so yeah. that we don't hurt in the same way again. It's pain. Yeah. We lose family members. Yeah. We lose livelihoods. We lose our homes. We lose parts of our community. And so if you could launch that process in the first nine days when the attention's there, Mm -hmm. because it takes a while to recover from some of these things, like houses have to be rebuilt or, um, you know, there's funerals to be had, like super emotional, right? So sometimes there's respect. There's like a 10 day, like, oh my gosh, people are grieving, but yet let's turn this pain into progress. Let's Mm -hmm. not get hurt in the same way again. Mm -hmm. And I like that framing, I think would be, you know, you have up to eight months, maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think that um, that's a good one to think about, too, is if you have a recent event, it's on the forefront. You don't have to jog people's imagination yeah. too much to be able to find some motivation. I think also integrating it into sports events or mm-hmm. things that people are going to do anyways. Yeah. Because people are busy. People have a lot of responsibilities. So if you bring that to them, mm-hmm. you're just increasing participation yeah i love when people at a concert or at like a sporting event or something just give a shout out to a cool thing that the community cares about in between songs just be like hey like shout out to this yeah you could do that but it seems kind of lame maybe but i think it would be so well received to have someone say like heard about tom and diana building that water tank or whatever like down the down the road shout out to Tom and Diana and then the crowd's like hell yeah that's yeah. amazing let's celebrate Tom and Diana yeah um, and just the community in general like doing things like that because then you get recognition and you get like excitement and you get an appreciation mm-hmm. for people just helping out yeah yeah I think we have to to make this exciting yeah I think it's it, it <laughs> not to 
be uh you know proselytize but i think planning's <laughs> really cool people should plan <laughs> but also it shouldn't suck it shouldn't be boring yeah because what we're talking about is shaping mm-hmm. actively shaping society and doing it in a way that isn't through lawsuits it's through care for the place and wanting to have a really strong place that's flourishing with yeah. people who are healthy and flourishing this is the first episode where we have questions from patrons involved okay. which yeah. is super exciting yeah um Sean L. asked a series of questions that are great, and they actually transition really well into this exact topic. He said that since you span the gap between storytelling and policy writing, how do these practices speak to one another, and what do you want people in each field to understand about the other? There's a follow-up question to that, but I'll save it. Yeah, excellent question, Sean. These are two topics where constantly kind of looking at and i would add um science in there as well mm, um, so be, like the the triangle of or not even triangle just like the yeah. the combined characteristics of storytelling policy writing and data yeah yeah i think a big part of it is that they're sometimes speaking different languages not literally but kind of literally yeah sometimes literally yeah um but you mean like a, a an artist or storyteller might speak in a more emotional way mm-hmm. and someone that is more policy focused could speak with legalese terms a scientist could throw in a lot of scientific jargon, jargon yeah um, and that can make it hard to understand each other mm-hmm. i think it's important to know each other's culture yeah <laughs> um, but if you're working on a team a lot of the times we'll have to translate or communicate something that's very complicated or might deal with uncertainty mm-hmm. into more common terms that your auntie or your grandmother or somebody who doesn't know what this is they've never seen it before so being able to know that number one facts and just bare analysis will be interesting to nobody yeah <laughs> but also some of that stuff's really important mm-hmm. and so we can keep some of that for the technical side but figuring out what people are concerned about and speaking to that is really important because Mm -hmm. sometimes we've found that the perceived risk is more palpable and easier to motivate people rather than the real risk. So if we've modeled something and we're like, oh my gosh, that fire is going to come down that mountain and just destroy the town. But folks are more concerned about the pavement in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. (laughs) or they're concerned about another risk. Yeah. Um, That might not actually be yeah that big of a risk you have to acknowledge it yeah like it feels like it yeah so it's important to talk about yeah or like if they have real risks as well that they're they're perceiving it's good to acknowledge it and then kind of say well why do you feel that way and and to be able to but on the story side we're realizing a lot of decisions are also made by emotions yeah and so being able to know that storytellers have always ruled society Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, policy has been there to govern society hopefully well Mm -hmm. um, and from a good place but without stories it's hard to understand why policy is important and why it it's something that we need to have yeah (laughs) Um, so I think policy is kind of a opaque term or it's a term that feels a little bit vague Mm -hmm. but it's it's really there to try to make sure that our lives are better and not more dangerous and good policy comes from a very, very foundational emotional story, mm-hmm. usually. Yeah, and it comes from a, a just a deft, totally grounded 
understanding of place and people. The yeah. good good policy does. Yeah. And good governance, it comes from people who can govern themselves in a way that's responsible and takes care of people. Mm-hmm. And stories can help us understand what we do next, where we came from. Um, it gives us that extra spark to be able to be emotionally moved and focused on something. Mm-hmm. And people attribute a lot of truth to stories, whether it's through oral tradition or films or this sort of new media it has a ton of weight and we have to know how it interacts with policy Yeah, because we're in this very strange era stateside where anybody can create media mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how much science you put into the policy. If yeah. somebody has a compelling story, that's where people are at. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to know what those narratives are. But I think as policy folks, we need to be actively involved in story making. Mm. And that's really why my, my life has taken that path is that if it's all policy and no story, how will you mobilize a message? How will you light a spark in folks to be moved to do something? And sometimes we make stories for policymakers. And I think that's really what I've seen more and more is that you see a short film or you see a piece or sometimes an analysis or research. It's good stuff, but the the audience is maybe four decision makers or a governor or a mayor. Yeah. And it's not for the general population necessarily. The interplay between those often, I think, is what stories move people, who needs to be moved, and when. And the policy side often comes after they're moved. Yeah. And as a planner, I often will kind of prepare things on the side things that we know are grounded in community. We've heard it from a thousand people on the street or in meetings mm-hmm. and we know it's going to resonate. And we just kind of have that on the sides of our desk. Yeah. And then somebody's like, we need to do this. And you're like, well, we, uh, we prepared a draft document, <laughs> you know, with our legal team or with our, and that happens to be super helpful to securing the health of people in place. Yeah. And the folks in that role, or if you're in that role as a decision maker, mm-hmm. you know, from your head and your heart that that's the way yeah and then you move and that decision's made in a really good way yeah so it's complex it's very three-dimensional and it's an excellent question because i've seen it used to harm people like we've Mm -hmm. seen what it did with misinformation campaigns Mm -hmm. and how that's shaping the health and the safety of our society and i think it's really dangerous we can use story to hurt yeah and we can use story to divide i think storytellers hopefully know how much power they have Mm -hmm. because they do if you can move people's emotions you control them yeah (laughs) with your stories yeah and so i think if we want to have stories that promote good things that are going to help reduce harm then there is that constant interplay of okay you've you've elicited an emotion with the story somebody is super moved now what And so that's the interplay. And I think working in teams of people who are really good at both Mm -hmm. is a real treat. And it's not always common. So not, there's not always enough resources in the policy space to have a filmmaker or a storyteller on staff or on contract. But I think that's really where the future of social change and good policy and addressing some of these issues come is going to have to be Mm -hmm. is we will, we always have an orator or or, um, the ability to visually communicate what we're doing Mm -hmm. in a way that's accessible 
that builds consensus. It doesn't divide people, but ultimately leads to good decisions. So mm-hmm. that's the long of it. It's uh, a good, it's a great response. I mean, when I was in college learning about this field and how to communicate within it, I think one of the best pieces of advice that a professor gave me was when it comes to moving people, your story is the one thing that can't be refuted. Like a story is the one thing where you present vulnerability and someone has the ability to know you and see you and refuting that makes them a jerk (laughs) and like someone that isn't empathetic and doesn't understand what it's like to be a human. Yeah. Um, And leaning into that and understanding how to craft stories, like you said, is just so effective. So thank you for that answer. Really appreciate it. He also, Sean also wanted to know uh, what skill sets are in demand in the fields in which you work and how can the upcoming generation develop those skills, which I love. I wish that question was asked more often of every field because it's like you said, like if we care about these issues and we care about projects that are bigger than us, how do we leave the door open to people that are going to relieve us of the difficult mission that we are engaged with and have ahead of us? I think skills need mentors. Yeah. And so in so many of these different efforts, um, we're going to need all the skills. Yeah. <laughs> so I think figure out what you're, what you're good at or what you love and just let it set you ablaze. I, I think that be, being able to work and practice working in transdisciplinary teams of, mm-hmm. you know, an engineer and an artist and a social worker mm-hmm. on a particular issue or site or community concern. Yeah get good at pulling the best out of everybody. Like that's really, it could be called leadership or just doing mm-hmm. things properly. But, <laughs> but I think that's, our problems are so complex now Yeah, that the skill set is being able to have some topical expert, but then weaving it together mm-hmm. into something that's going to work. Yeah. And that draws off all that and making sure that we don't have blind spots. Yeah, sharing information and encouraging people to do what they're best at and letting them know that they're good at it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, um, I mean, you name it, uh, law, engineering, art, graphic design, we need everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But at the same time, I think we're at a very interesting phase, at least in the United States, where we don't have a well-resourced adaptation effort. Mm-hmm. It, and it's part of it's because of that political division where at least publicly a lot of our elected officials haven't stood on the same stage and say hey we all gotta rally on this problem yeah <laughs> it's certainly it's keeps getting kicked around like as this kind of silly circular conversation yeah <laughs> uh that doesn't really go anywhere mm-hmm. and so i think in our time we're gonna have to have sort of a manhattan project where we address this stuff I already see the brightest minds of our generation being incentivized to go into tech because the incentives are there, but ultimately we're going to need that intellectual and that emotional firepower of our whole generation to deal with this stuff, both at home in their neighborhood, but also in companies, in states, because this is going to be the hardest thing we've ever dealt with as a species. Yeah, it is now. It's yeah. here now. The a- the AQI thing that you yeah, were talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's already it's here. Like... <laughs> but I think for a lot of people, they don't realize it yet. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it, it sometimes it might be too late, or we might not have everybody on board. But I think we have to act like we care for everyone. Yeah, like we have to act like guardians. 
Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the name of your podcast is pretty apropos. Mm. I mean, it's about, you know, keeping, <laughs> keeping good care of, of the planet and, and coming at it as guardians of people and place, regardless of yeah. if you agree with them or not. It's like, it's in a deep sense, mm-hmm. loving your neighbor and these life support systems that you wouldn't be anything without, you know, the water and, and what it, and the land and what it provides. That's a huge part of the decades ahead of us mm-hmm. is... Um, I work on projects with tons of different skill sets, people with different backgrounds, and I learn something from them all the time. So people and skills, they go together. <laughs> so being able to, the skill set and the, and the mentorship uh, of how to use that skill set is, is key. As much as possible, working with people who are not just different than you, but bring a different skill set. It could be just in your current workplace. Get to know the HR people, get to know the art people, get to know the janitor get to know like because ultimately this is about humans solving problems and how to make sure everybody feels seen and appreciated because uh we need each other yeah there's no other way out of this like Mm -hmm. uh we do need each other yeah very well said thank you for all of that and the whole conversation preceding it Mm -hmm. um it was really really motivating to me and i'm sure that's motivating to those listening in so thank you for speaking thank you for listening and we'll see you soon thank you all so much for having me homekeepers is made with the help of down-to-earth people like you thanks to cj the patrons mitch Eder for editing olella for making the theme song and you for listening and striving to make the world a better place if you want to support you can do so at patreon.com slash alex harris which is linked in the show notes and just like that the episode's over see you in the next one